I think we're I think we're good. Yeah. So I love I love this this set of people on Twitter. You know, this is the thing about like when you're a content producer and you have a real job. And then all of a sudden I'm Elon Musk over here. It's like people talking shit about me on Twitter because I, I called some of my ex employees that no longer work in my business schmucks. For context, okay, you see I'm doing the hand gesture. Okay. I don't think that every employee was schmucks, nor do I think that he was even vast majority of schmucks. But it's impossible to run a business without some schmucks getting in. And it it really gets to me. It, it, this is it gets to me that that people, you know, it's this is the thing. Like this is the thing with fucking Twitter is these all these fucks just believe that they could. They, all of a sudden, they're qualified to talk about how to run a business, what it's like, all this shit. Like, and so now I'm gonna become one of these guys. I'm just gonna block people. Me too. I, I saw the, that comment on my Twitter. I was like, these people are getting blocked. That's what you got to do. But hey, look, people are watching it, something that we made. So, <laughs> so that's the good news. If you don't have trolls or haters, does it even matter? Like, you're not even doing anything. That's it. It could have been worse. You could have thought there was a really big blog, a, a bot problem and tried to buy the platform. That's true. I didn't. At least I didn't do that. So it, it, we have to talk about this FTX. So did you, did you hear the story about the guy losing the house? Did you hear about this? No. Yeah. Okay. He lost the house. No. Yeah. So give us a, give us the update. I saw it, and it, Andreessen Horowitz has like a has a WhatsApp channel. Cool. Uh, and it's I think it started because of Ukraine the, the WhatsApp channel, yeah. and. Um, and there was a story of a dude on Twitter who lost his house because of FTX. This is not really in the subjects, but I'm just bringing this up as like a as like a thing because we we decided we want to talk about like like founders being treated like like gods sometimes, right? And this is clearly a dude. What's his name? S SBF is that what the name is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was treated like a god for like a really long time. It's interesting because the founder of not rippling, but fuck, ah, it escapes me. Uh, Amzad, fuck, what's his name? Uh, Which company? I met him and he's not actually that smart. He looks like he was trying to act like he was um, on the spectrum when in fact he really wasn't and he was really good at like, for the sake putting on a show. Right. The ultimate point of the story, this tweet is that is that someone was like, yeah, my neighbor lost his house as a result of this FDX thing. They were like, how is this possible? How could it happen so fast? And I think what probably happened, if the story is true, is that someone just realized, oh, shit, like, all, like, my expenses need to be radically reduced. I had this net worth that I thought I had. Now I have suddenly have this from one day to the next. But there are already repercussions, is I guess what I'm trying to get to. Yeah, so so the the story here is FTX, which is uh, well, two things. It's a crypto exchange, but also has a hedge fund as well. And uh, they had a, basically a run on the bank, right? Uh, there was uh, one of their largest investors in the hedge fund. I think heard rumblings. Who also owns uh, a, a crypto exchange? He had, I think it was like two billion dollars that he had 
uh, invested into this hedge fund, which is separate from FTX. Um, and he, he heard of like these intertwined dealings and then he was threatening he was going to withdraw all of his money, which caused a massive run on the bank. And it turns out that Sam, the founder there, they didn't have enough money to actually cover everybody's deposits. So right. essentially they were illiquid. Um, and now they have applied for bankruptcy protection, I believe. Um, it's a global, they're based in the Bahamas. They also, they have, I think one or two board members that are inside the company. They also took a ton of money from traditional, uh, Silicon Valley investors like Sequoia, which is, I think of any of these big blowups, this is a new piece, right? Like Eliz we had Elizabeth Holmes that happened. She didn't have any major like the like uh, Silicon Valley esque investors. This is a little different. Um, they were so proud of that back in the day. Do you remember? I yeah. remember all of them. Real Silicon Valley investors didn't invest in this. And be like, <laughs> not so much. Yeah, I remember hearing the stories about like, oh, I saw Elizabeth and and like I didn't believe it from the from the from the, the, the first piece or something like that. And they were kind of bragging that they didn't get into it. But this uh, is a little different. Um, and this is also, I think, in 2021, when things kind of got off the rails as far as funding goes. And there was a lot of less diligence that happened. And obviously, there were some people like Sam that took advantage of that. And this is one of maybe the start of the unraveling of some of these little, little looser investments that um, 2021 provided. Uh, but that's kind of the headline of the story. I don't know what you guys' thoughts are on that. I said it on Twitter to Albert Wanger when he posted a little bit about the crypto ecosystem, and I'll say it again right here. I have a different take. I think this is straight fraud. Uh, there's a lot of different pieces of this coming out, and I think it, it, it's too early to tell, but the Financial Times and Bloomberg did a piece yesterday in their balance sheet, and there's no real assets on the balance sheet. It's a bunch of coins that they were the only owner of, and they had assigned a value in it. It's an auditor who, if you look at the auditor, it's a name you've never heard of. The auditor is on their website had their um, their location in Decentraland. And for everyone who doesn't know what Decentraland is, it's a virtual world. So your auditor has a store in a virtual world. And you're sending everyone financials, I think, showing that you made, I don't know, $250 million in profit last year. And then when everyone looks at your bank, uh, your balance sheet... It's a house of cards. It's you own your own tokens. You own a bunch of tokens mm. that you're the investor in. And the only reason you're saying they're worth something is because you're the largest investor. And if you actually tried to sell them in the market, um, it wouldn't be worth anything. And I, I think I may have mentioned this on one of the other podcasts. My first job out of school was at Lehman Brothers. And so mm -hmm. I remember watching all this implode in real time. I had nothing to do with it. Uh, Lehman Brothers, for everyone who doesn't know, was an investment bank that went bankrupt in 2008. It also had a really bad balance sheet. I think they had real estate in New York, wind farms in India, and also wasn't worth what they were claiming it was worth. So I think this is very similar. I also think there's a good shot here. People go to jail. Um, I don't yeah, know enough. I agree. I've just been reading what's going on. So I think this is Elizabeth. The only thing that's really analogous to this in Silicon Valley is Elizabeth Holmes. I'd love to know what comes out if these financial statements they were sending everyone were real uh, or yeah, they totally that, just yeah, fraudulent. Sure. But the fact that the auditor had a store in Decentraland definitely makes me feel real confidence in that auditor. And yeah. I don't know if I, any... I will say... 
Go, Jimmy. In, in, in just my experience, I, I, I have this view into other people's companies sometimes because I coach see other CEOs. And there's, there's, a, there's a few people as a result of this experience that I know uh, that uh, ran crypto-related companies. And, and as you, we all know, a bunch of people, including people in our CEO group off to the side, that run crypto companies. And uh, the, it's, uh, so first of, all, first of all, when you're, when you're an early founder, if you're in crypto, in 2020 and 2021 or whenever, you could literally, like Joe, you could have done it if you wanted, you could have been like, I'm starting a crypto company and just like, well, not quite like Adam Newman did with his like conscious <laughs> coin or whatever the fuck he called it. But uh, you could have, and you could have easily have raised $25 million for a crypto thing. Totally. And no one would have questioned that. They would have said, what, what happens in the seed stages is it relies on a, on a web of trust. And it, well, I don't know what happened with you, Joe. I'd be curious about your experience. When we raised around with Andrews and Horowitz last year, Andrew was like, uh, "Do let's do reference calls." And so he called uh, Michael Karn, your, your partner at AC&Z, Andrew, Andrew Chen. Yes, Andrew Chen at Andrews and Horowitz, our our partner over there. I know Joe, you and I share one. He called uh, Michael Karn. He called Zach Sims at Code Academy. He called a bunch of people that are uh, not only friends of mine but investors of mine in some cases, and he was like, what's the thing with this dude, Julian? And at the very beginning of any business, this is what venture investors do. But at some point, the social proof lines up such that people just start to believe in things to a degree. Mm -hmm. Joe, what's yeah. your experience? You've, you, so you've, this is now your third venture-backed business. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the first business it took a year to raise a million dollars. And now it's, you can raise a lot of money really quickly. Once, once you have that reputation and, and the, the social proof of what you've done in the past and that you did it in a credible, honest way, even when things didn't go well, um, it, you know, the doors stays open, thankfully. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's interesting now with this, you know, another case of what appears to be massive fraud in our, broader space like what you know how how does this change does it really change going forward do uh because andrew did the same thing with me he called a bunch of people and you know i spent meaningful hours on the phone with people like really digging on like is this somebody you know i've heard good things but is this somebody we want to trust like is that good enough or mm -hmm. where where does it go in the future for for the founders coming up or you know all of us doing our next companies or whatever it might be yeah but isn't this a little different situation so when he did so when um uh ftx when they raised their most latest round with investors like sequoia that was a series they raised like 600 million dollars right yeah. so it's this definitely just not on on reputation there had to be, well, you'd hope that there had to be some sort of diligence, but, and as you mentioned, like some of these auditors and based in the Bahamas, there's no real board. I don't know. It, it seems, it seems like the frothiness kind of took over a lot of like saying standard right. diligence. It, what you're saying is true. At the same time, there is, you know, there's a reason y'all must have seen or a portion of the audience, the, uh, there's, there are eight people listening, not instead of five. From last no, week. we almost have a hundred views. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So in that Silicon Valley episode where 5X. puts his dick on the table, 
uh, you could watch the episode if you like. It's like the balls, the ballsier, the more, the more arrogant you become. That's true. With a venture investor, too, I, I would say that that's not quite true. There's a degree of parity to it, but there's also a, a lot of truth to it. Where the more confident one becomes, the more, uh, the more respect you almost like get from the venture investor to a degree. In fiction, like Silicon Valley, they exaggerate it. But in fact, the you know this whole story about the dude playing a League of Legends during a Sequoia Val a Sequoia Capital partner meeting really plays into that mystique, and uh, and people want to you know I, I, uh, Valar was one of Peter Thiel's funds that invested in in Breather back in the day, mm -hmm. and James was only two partners there. Uh, one of the guys is in the PayPal mafia, Andrew McCormick. The other guy is James Fitzgerald both people from Teal Capital or various funds. And I, and I, we were at the, like the closing dinner and the dude is like, oh, and how old are you, by the way? And I think I'm 37 at the time. I say 37. And there's this shock on his face because I look younger than I, than you I do. Am. And he, he shows like a kind of real disappointment that I'm not like a whiz kid. You get what <laughs> I mean? <laughs> like one of these 25 year old people that don't know what the fuck they're doing and, and they're just shooting their mouth off and they're just randomly a genius. And, and like people really want to believe in those people. They love that type of investment. If they can make it, they're like, this kid is a genius. And if you, if you play into that as this dude, SBF dead, uh, probably it kind of like has a disproportionate like effect on, on the power that you have. I did this for my last company. I played this to a T. Uh, yeah. I, I, I played up. So I was first time venture, uh, backed, uh, uh, company and, uh, to raise my B, um, I would just talk like, and, and also I thought of it as well. Like, like I, we talked last episode, you feel like you're God. And at that point I did, I really did. We were, we were one of the hottest companies out of, in Silicon Valley. I was living in San Francisco, had all this hype. And then I would just like, even believe it, but also it would come off like that. Uh, I was able to, at the end, so we raised a $50 million series B, which back in the day was just ginormous. Mm -hmm. John Doerr from Kleiner was the one who led it, but like, I let him to believe uh, that Mark Andreessen was competing for the deal. And then it just like the valuations just got so high. And I was talking like I knew everything, which at the time I thought I did, but also I'm in this industry, which is logistics. And now I've learned a lot more about this industry. And at that time talking like now I'm looking back at my younger self is like, I didn't know what the fuck was going on. Like, I don't know how important, like, like w what is like the, the cap packs, how much we, should we be investing? What should be the payback time for, for that? Like how, how efficiently should we be running the, the operations? Like what are the real pressure points in that business versus like, we have users, they're using it. They love us and we're just growing, which for some businesses, if you're a pure software business or a consumer internet business, that's really all that matters. But I didn't really know a lot of those things. And I'd kind of just brush it along like, oh, we'll figure all that stuff out. But I, I played into the exactly what you're talking about, Julian, they want the, the whiz kid kind of doesn't know a lot of things. Um, yeah. but like they kind of being naive is like kind of a benefit because I, I also do believe that to a certain extent, I think being naive into going into an industry, 
a lot of people that that do know the industry really well, they may not actually go into it. And then you just kind of fear it all along the way. So it does make sense why they would do that. But there is that type of investor, especially first time founders that people and venture investors do want to invest in. Mm -hmm. I think it's also more, a risk the... tolerance. When you're younger, you're just more you're willing to go the distance. And I think everyone here has significant risk tolerance. Look at this group of people. Uh, Joe, I think you're doing your third, Julian second, Kevin, your second, I'm on my second. And I think we're not young people. And at the same time, we also have no fear of doing this again and again and again. And I think that's what people I mean, really we have love. Fear. We just proceed regardless. Of the <laughs> we have, it's really what we have figured out a way to hide the fear and put it in the deep, dark depths of our belly. That's it. Yeah, we compartmentalize very well. That's it. Exactly. What I think about. my risk tolerance has actually increased because now after being so such a, like having such a high flying company, like I have so much more to prove and I'm willing to risk like even more than it was like as a younger version of myself. But VCs do look for pattern matching. So can you say that that younger founders have a higher risk tolerance? Probably. Joe, I was going to ask you, did you ever, did you feel that in the days of clout? I remember clout, at least in so my do I. because I was in social back in the day, writing books and being a influencer in <laughs> six or something. The clout was the biggest thing on the earth. Did you feel that internally? Yeah, it was wild. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is like a thing I built the first version of by myself in my bedroom. You know, I had never done anything that anyone cared about. So to put it out and it hit almost right away, like, you know, lightning in a bottle, just like, um, and it was crazy. Like, you know, celebrities pinging us about their cloud scores, people coming to the office, just like, you know, we do had three years where that, every day was our biggest was. day. Explain, explain, explain to the people that are under 40. Oh, right, right. <laughs> yeah. This is like, might as well be geo cities at this point. Um, <laughs> yeah. So like, you know, in the early days of social, and this is 2008, um, you know, Facebook had just broken out of colleges, Twitter's not even close to mainstream. Uh, but people were starting to think that these platforms are important and starting to put more time into them. But there was no way to know if you were doing well. Did anyone care about the content you were creating? How do you make sense of who you're running into on these places? And I had this weird experience. I had jaw surgery, my jaw was wired shut. I basically was reliant on Twitter and Facebook uh, in like late 2007. And that as my only form of communication and my background was an engineer. So I built a way to understand influence on first Twitter, but then adding all the social networks. So clout was a one to 100 score of how influential people were across every topic on social media. It was like, you know, I mentioned a lightning bolt in terms of users, but also press. And yep. we were like, I remember the coolest, our most horrible company to ever exist, like on a daily basis. Uh, so it was like being in a hurricane for many years and I have to say your your story about because you need an origin story right it's very yeah. clear that you need a proper origin story as a superhero or supervillain <laughs> and as a founder when pitching your story about your jaw being wired shut which Love i'm it. hearing for the first time is the best origin story ever 
for coming up with a company and then fundraising for this company? Did people love this story at the time oh. or is it just me now? I mean, I like, I felt like I was going to get sponsored by like the American Dental Association. <laughs> it, was like, it was just like every, you know, it was, it worked so well. And I had the picture in the deck of me with my jaw wired shut. No, and, you didn't. Yeah. That is uh, amazing. So is this a real origin story? Like the, yeah, it's like, a, I mean, like, cause I, you know, joy mode and yeah, I've, you concoct origin stories from a lot of, right. you know, influences and you got to try to make it clear. But this was like, I was, you know, just an engineer had this jaw surgery, was stuck in my apartment in New York city for three months on a lot of drugs, because <laughs> um, of the pain <laughs> stuff and just like built this thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was like how it started. And, and so the origin story is, so Kevin, yours is your, you were an eBay power seller, That's right? right? And so when you were 15 or something, I, I don't know why I, and, 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 and so Andy, what, what's your Nanit origin story? Okay. Oh God. Uh, so the Nanit <laughs> origin story is I was introduced to my founder. He had been a father, uh, my co-founder, he had been a father he had built a bunch of algorithms on his child. Uh, he had a PhD in computer vision. And we had looked very carefully when I was a VC at Dropcam. And I always believed there was a missing analytics layer of video. And so the two of us started talking. This was 2014. A friend of ours that we all know, Hunter Walk, I remember saying to me, computer vision doesn't work and will never work. And I teased. The second time you sound very angry. This is the second time you've mentioned. No, actually, I'm not angry at all. I think it's just super funny, and I like to make fun of him for it. And it's just okay. amazing when you can, can when people say that to you, and you can prove people wrong. Yeah. Um, and we started the company off of that, and it was a belief that there was going to be this revolution in deep learning and in the way we can we can build analytics, and we ended up being right. And that's my origin story. Julian, what's yours? I mean, tell me about yours. I don't know about why I wanted to, why did you want to hang out in cafes so much? You know, it's a great, it's, it's someone came to me, there's this a chief product officer of BetterUp yesterday, and they're the largest coaching, like kind of marketplace where they sell to organizations and they have thousands of coaches on the back end, essentially providing it. Did they you meet Prince Harry yesterday? I did not meet Prince Harry. He's not the chief product officer. He's the chief something else. But everybody <laughs> brings this up. But this this woman, Gabriella, I'm randomly in 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 meetings. This happens to me regularly, and it's it's a nice blessing. It's a good thing. Like, uh, and she was like, "Oh, by the way, I'm a huge breather fan." I'm just like, "Oh, thank you. It's so nice." And the experience that most people have with it is a little bit like that, where they used it when someone else booked it. But mine that I used to tell was, uh, I had always, I had never worked in an office. I had never needed one. I'd never had a regular job. I went straight from working in a call center to being an influencer on cloud to all these other things. And so I'd never had an office experience. And I said, why isn't there another place for me to go other than cafes? And I was like, I just didn't have this, this office experience in my mind. And I said, well, I should invent a place like this and I should be able to unlock it from the phone. Uber, it was the era of Uber and all these things where you could do things with your phone. And, uh, and magically that worked. But back to, back to Joe's point, like it, it takes like six months to raise your first million dollars. 
And then the next time you do it, you're just like, oh, yeah. And so I, I continue to wonder whether we're immune to all this stuff that's going on or whether the ecosystem is just like collapsing underneath us. And the next time that we have to go out and raise venture financing, whether we're still going to be okay, if you imagine the company's all right, or whether we're also going to have an insanely bad hard time. Right. You know, there's this thing you always hear about venture is you can only lose your money once, hmm. but if, you know, so if a deal goes sideways like this, what they lost 200 million to Sequoia, that's nothing. Um, yeah, 3% of the punt, the fund, they actually came out with that to their right. LPs of uh, that one fund. Yes. Nothing. But if it works, you know, it's kind of infinite upside. So we hear about a story like FTX that blows up and you're, everyone's like, well, how can you be so dumb? And you know, so many red signs, hmm. but how many deals do they do where you're like, Hmm, this doesn't look great. There's some weird thing, but it doesn't blow up and it goes well. And like, we never hear about it yeah. because it was fine. Uh, like, I have no idea. I'm just curious. Like, do you guys think there's a lot more companies that, you know, in retrospect, there's red signs, but there are red flags, but they, uh, ultimately are fine. It's a great question, Joe. And from, from the inside of a business, right? A legitimate business. <laughs> and, and I, I don't believe that we've ever given it. Why are you making call. hand quotations when you say legitimate? No, I'm joking. Legitimate, quote unquote, <laughs> business. Uh, when, when we talk about a business, I mean, I, I've raised a lot of money in my history. The reality is, is you're not committing fraud and you're certainly not lying. You're telling the truth. But at the same time, you are creating reality inside of the business. And so there are, I'm not one of them. I, I'm actually like, I'm, um, uh, I, I, I'm really almost pathologically telling the truth all the time. Sometimes it really hurts me actually, but I will say that at the same time, there's probably some people that are on the opposite side. You know, I was in, I was in a commercial real estate tech for a long time and people would talk to me about Adam Newman being a fraud. And I would be like, I don't know if Adam Newman is a fraud or if she's just an amazing pitch dude, right? Like a hundred X better than I am. So it's, it's hard to tell whether these people are, and, and maybe that's my problem is like, I'm pathologically truthful. So I assume other people are kind of like me when in fact they're not, they're fucking liars. And so I don't really know whether someone is uh, really fraudulent or they're working their best to build the build to create the reality of the business the same way that I kind of was. So it turns out in Adam Newman's case, it definitely was not a fraud. This is yeah. now he was pushed out of the business. They went public, uh, definitely not at the same valuation than Adam Newman got it to, but it is a thriving business. I'm a customer, happy customer of theirs. Um, so it's not definitely not a fraud, but obviously pump that piece up. I think Joe, to your, to your point, my, my, perspective on this is that the industry, like the VC industry as a, as a whole is like it, 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 the returns are better than ever. Like the, to, to kind of taking away the last like six months or so of like the public uh, market, which has obviously been down, but the overall like SAS is bigger than anybody ever expected. Everybody's using computers for everything. There's so many industries, including logistics, which I may be in, that are relatively untouched by technology. So I think that 
that's what's driving all of these returns. I do think that that things that, that there are going to be some systemic uh, problems to industries like crypto. I think that that is one. There were so many like there's every new you turn on the, the CNBC and there's another like crypto.com is now uh, uh, like everybody's withdrawing all their funds. They have so many different dealings and all this. I think there is a house of cards. Maybe it's it's mm -hmm. it's in part of the crypto ecosystem, but I think in the broader like VC tech ecosystem, I, I think it's stronger than ever. That's my point of view. Will there be more diligence? Yes, there will be. There's less, also less people are writing less checks. So it's, it's always gone like there's always been like a tilt towards the founder or the VC. It definitely mm -hmm. is more towards the VC now. So there's going to be a lot more diligence um, mm -hmm. and it'll probably go back and forth and back and forth. But I think the overall like your, your point, Joe, like you could only lose one extra money, but like you could potentially 100 times it. Like mm -hmm. that's never going to go away. And so you're always going to have the uh, people, founders included, that are going to be chasing these like insane outcomes. So I think venture as a whole is a very healthy asset class and, and something that if you do want to build a, a really big business, I think that you should take venture capital. However, not everybody should take venture capital. I think it's a huge mistake. Uh, there's a lot of businesses that are not run on venture capital. that are very, very successful. But if you do want to be a market leader, a global player, whatever that is, and, and you see a way that you could use venture capital to accelerate your business, you definitely should. I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to sit here and I'm going to define what I think a fraud is. And I'm going to sit here and say, I'm going to start with WeWork. WeWork was not a fraud. WeWork was a company that was spending way too much money was a company that had related party transactions. For anyone who doesn't know what that means, Adam Newman owned some of the real estate and he was also renting the real estate. But again, it wasn't a fraud. The board approved everything that Adam Newman did. He told them what yep. he was doing. The board approved it. There were board minutes. What happened was Adam Newman tried to go public and then public market investors, this is absolutely, utterly absurd. And the VCs and the board had to ask him to leave. Otherwise, they were going to lose all their money. That's not fraud. Mm. Theranos is fraud. Fraud is when you sit there and you make yep. up the revenue numbers. And I think that's my right. definition of fraud. I'm not a lawyer. Um, but I think everyone mm. here knows some company where they've cooked the books. Um, I can think of another one in the crypto yep. space off the top of my head. I'm not an investor, but I have heard they cook the books and they lie about the revenue numbers. Um, you Right. I'm who, not going to say the name. Who is it? I will okay. not say the Got name it. because on the off chance I'm wrong, it's not my place. They have inve yeah. large okay. investors. Let them deal with it. But yeah. anything besides – so cooking the books, giving fake numbers, that's fraud. And then everything else is – I don't know what the founders do. I'm honest to a fault. I, I came from VC. I'm probably the wrong person to be telling these outlandish stories. I remember doing all the diligence. Uh, but when you, you, Theranos is fraud. Looks like FTX is probably fraud. Um, I, no one here so Andy, has ever committed fraud. Suggests, it suggests that you went through some deals because you probably saw, I, I, I see what the analysts do. You were an, an analyst at North. Uh, Coast, uh, I was an associate. So one okay, step above. One step above. No and it was Norwest. So just correcting the name. It was Norwest. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so uh, you uh, you saw sketchy things that you, I'm sure, thought were false, 
right, during the time that you were there? We've done, I, I had a diligence call with a company that ended up selling for $800 million that ended up getting a Series A backed by Excel where we called this the old CEO where he and the co-founder worked and the old CEO said to us, hey, we fired him for hacking the personnel files, getting on the drive and literally looking up everyone else's salary. We had proof he did it. We asked him to leave. Yeah. We didn't fire him for cause. We took a step back and we said, okay, that's not the type of person we can be in be business with. And then about a week later, Excel did the deal. I don't know if they ever called that person. My guess is they just didn't call the same person we called. And that ended up being right. a very successful company that you all know the name of. And I will not ta say the mm -hmm. name. And it got acquired. It built a great product. Those people were known as very honest in their next company. And who knows? But the second you start hearing about this stuff, it's an area you don't want to touch. That being said... Mm -hmm. The Bahamas, the U.S. Virgin Islands, the Isle of Man, uh, yeah. Panama, yeah. all these incorporation places were always on the edge of finance. And the fact that like mm -hmm. a company like FTX felt the need to move to the Bahamas, that's a red flag. That was where so just, Pablo Escobar kept his money. That and the Cayman Islands. There's a combo. Uh, th this brings me to the domain name space is one of the few places where I, cause I was, before I did any of this stuff, I was a, I was a, a super affiliate for GoDaddy. It was one of the first <laughs> things I ever did online. And you can make a shocking amount of money doing this. And so, uh, and, and so I learned a lot about the domain name space and all of the people who, not all of them, a shocking amount of these people are in Vancouver for some reason. I'm not sure why. Wild. And when they're not in Vancouver in Canada, they're in the Bahamas. And they own like 300,000 domain names. There's a very famous dude that did this. And it, what happened is, is he, he got all of his domain names and he bought them all during the dot-com crash. And everyone was like, the internet is a scam. And he went out and he just went out and he bought, he's very fa famous for owning, own, owning rumcakes.com, like literally just generic dot-coms, an endless number of generic dot-coms that each get like five visits a month. And he just puts ads on top of them and then boom, 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 boom. And he was making like a hundred million dollars a year or some crazy. Jesus. Number. Okay. <laughs> and, and so the reason I'm bringing this up is because there is this, the tide is going out on crypto right now, exactly in the same way. There's like fraud and all those other things. Everyone's like, there's no use case. You've heard that a hundred times this week. There's no use case. Everyone's pulling out. And so the real question is, 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 uh, is, is who is, I had a, a dollar cost averaging that I was doing on uh, a few uh, crypto things. And I actually stopped it like a couple months ago. And now I'm like, should I just keep buying in just tiny, tiny amounts? And, and you end up being the guy who wants $300,000 domain, 300,000 domain names at the end, where it's just like, fuck it and be like everybody else and just be like, forget about that and go out and build a real business for real. Here's the interesting thing about the internet and when it sold off in the dot-com crash, and here's the difference in crypto, and I don't know the answer to this question. When the dot-com sold off, there were a lot of businesses being made. Amazon was selling books. They weren't profitable. Akamai was selling hosting. It wasn't profitable, um, and so on and so forth. These were businesses. They were real businesses. They were light on revenue. They probably didn't have the greatest financials. 
they were doing what they said they were doing. The interesting thing about crypto, and I don't know the answer to should you be buying or should you not, I've never really been that into crypto. What's the don't use buy. case? What's that killer use case you for it? I parroted, I parroted, parroted exactly what you just said, and you're here throwing it back in my face. Where did you parrot it? <laughs> I just literally now said, what is the use case? What is the use case? Sorry, I'm a little tired today know? then. All right, let's yeah. move on. Let's move on. Yeah, no, go on, go on. And so you got to have a use case. Helium's the best thing I've ever seen as a use case. I don't know the answer. Let me ask a different question. Who's honest in crypto? I feel like the Coinbase folks are very honest. They are. I, I, they're I feel public. like they're yeah, incredibly they, they, honest. They, they have to be. I don't know who. I, I feel like the Circle people are pretty honest. I, I have no idea. You, you, you don't know what's, what's happening underneath the, the covers. I'm not invested as, in any of these companies. Be. I'm going to say that as a disclaimer right now. I will say, like my, I feel like my Wild West days are behind me as an entrepreneur. I remember like spamming MySpace pages in two thousand five mm-hmm. or something, right? And and I Jill remember remembers you, you too doing that, <laughs> right? Yeah, I was there. That's what you did. So, uh, <laughs> I, and so I, I just feel like my days of doing crazy stuff are behind me. And now I just want to run a legitimate business and not like look like turn like look look over my shoulder and is like is someone watching like I just want to run a business with good people that I like. I've become like a super boring entrepreneur, but uh, I always you know even the mystique as to earlier the mystique of the of the the whiz kid who made a hundred million dollars at the age twenty five or whatever. I am falling into that mystique myself. I'm like, but, but maybe there's more, and I and I'm not seeing it. And I, yeah, you know, I don't know. This is age, I guess. It's weird to say. No, not necessarily. So I will definitely say that I, uh, I'm a little different. So I, I am using. So I've been in, in the logistics industry now for like a decade. Uh, that's not where I started my career. Um, but now I, I know things that other people don't and i am taking that and i want to turn all of those learnings into a massive company and i also wanted to destroy all of my shitty competitors by having a better by having a better product for customers by right. truly solving their needs in, in my industry um because there's, there's a lot of really high switching costs that uh people don't have to be really good actors and mm-hmm. i just that just drives me crazy like I want to just destroy my competitors and be the best product. Um, and also in, in doing that, creating a massive business. I'm, I'm not a passive, like, let's do all the safe things and all of this. I want but, but I want to be strategic. I won't, I will not be going and, and blasting my space pages or not, not because I wouldn't do that, but just because it doesn't make any sense. Um, but I, I think that. I still have, I actually have even more of a sense to want to be successful in a big time way than I did before with my previous company, but I'm more quiet than I was before about this. So I, I, Kevin, I, I think, I think everyone here has done pretty rational, real businesses. Joe, I think, I don't know this and I'm going to speak for you. I think Clout was a SaaS business at the end. Is that right? Not even. Yeah. So we had, uh, you know, subscription revenue on our data. Um, and then we had campaign business around, um, you know, basically influencer campaigns, Kevin, but we were doing, 
you know, more than 10 million in revenue. Like it was like a real thing. Yeah. I mean, like you were selling stuff, uh, Kevin, yeah. you were, you, 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 I think you said it yourself, your business didn't have great unit economics, but you had a product that mm. people paid for, and maybe you charged a little too yep. little for it. Julian, you also had a product that people paid for, and I don't know, you had a pandemic that hit you and you may have also had bad unit economics. And I remember going to a holiday party and telling people that we, I made baby monitors and people would look at me like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Um, yeah. and like, somebody, people have said it's to me, do you make money doing that? Do you know what that's like? Do you get respect among your friend circle? I just need to know, like, cause I get none. Now I do because they and all I have kids. <laughs> <laughs> now I get it everywhere, but everyone used to just laugh at me. Like, what are you doing with your life? And now I'm trying to build Val because I, I'm truly believe, I truly believe that these, that folks like us who are running companies that are distributed where people are all over the world, that we should make information yeah. searchable and shareable. And that's why I started it, dealing with some of the problems of running Nana Distributed. And so I think everyone mm -hmm. here, we're the, we're the wrong people to comment on these hot, on the, the crazy, crazy companies. Because yeah, everyone here is a crazy little story, but they're all mm -hmm. real businesses at the end of the day. Joe's mm -hmm. selling data, yeah. Kevin's selling shipping, and Julian was selling space. Joe, did you believe, did you have a, there was there a period where you were raising without a business model and it was just like, it was cloud people used it and, and we're not sure what we're going to do like Foursquare or whatever. Um, you know, there was, it was clear that there was, could be a business there. Like every form of broadcast media had been measured. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, whether we looked like Nielsen or we looked like something totally different. Right. The bet was that people were now broadcasters. And if you could measure that, there was value there. Uh, was the valuation we got like rational to the revenue we were raising? Like, that's a fair question. <laughs> right. um, you yeah. know, we raised at a $200 million valuation with, you know, doing a million dollars in revenue or something crazy, like at some point. And that I mean, was, that was in what year? 2011. Yeah, like, wow. That, happen, that did not yeah. happen. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it was, and we had term sheets at twice that. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, that, I mean, I don't remember the exact number, but it was in that kind of magnitude. Uh, so there was, there was revenue. There was like, a rational business that could be built was there a rational decision on valuation probably not but it, you know flip the other way like we did our it was just a different world when we did our it wasn't even called the seed round it was called a series it was our series a mm -hmm. was you know 1.5 on 3 million wow uh, so you know we what did 1.5 on 3 million and then 8 on 15 and then 30 on 200 it was like a very crazy <laughs> I, I think many of us have been in this thing, and I want to ask it specifically. This is this one on 200. Uh, sorry, it wasn't one on 200, but it, it was basically 200x uh, revenue. Uh, Breather hit a 250 that I was able to negotiate, but I, looking back on it, I was caught in, and someone actually called it to me. They said, you're in the post-money trap. And I said what does that mean? I had never heard that expression before. And it means the next round is going to be so much harder because of the valuation that you've raised at Kevin. I don't even need to ask you. <laughs> I'm sure you were in it. 
Joe, I have a feeling that now you are in it. And I know oh, yeah. that I was in it. You are so tempted by high valuations when you're an entrepreneur and you hear someone else is raised at this crazy valuation. I explicitly, looking back at it now, I actually kind of navigated myself into it. <clears throat> I didn't need to have a 250. Same here. I wanted it. Me too. I got it. You know? Yeah. And it was, it made my life harder afterwards. We made hundreds of mistakes. All of them could be fixed except raising too much money at too high of a valuation. Wow. What a statement. That's a great statement that, yeah, it's, it's almost impossible to come back from that. Your expectations yeah. are set way too high. Trying to do anything like raising a down round, you lose so much momentum with the company, other investors, externally, customers, all these things. It really puts you in a tough position. Um, and I think that's definitely a, a learning that I have going into, into what we're building now. Yeah. Everything got way less fun. Yes. Uh, you know, it was board meetings, less fun. Yeah. <laughs> a lot less fun. <laughs> and then, then you start doing things that you know are negative for the business. Yes. Because you're just trying to like show signs of life and, you know, speed yourself into like that actual valuation. But it, it just really, really is a, uh, such a way to self-inflict damage to, to your company, your own kind of life, like everything. So, so we're true. talking about when you, uh, go Julian, go ahead. Uh, Andy, I was going to ask you, first of all, whether it had ever happened to you. And then Joe, you wrote a post with an amazing quote in it. Andy, I'm going to, I'm going to bring that back to you, Joe. I want to ask you about that quote, but Andy, did you ever get stuck in this trap? As I a have business? not, honestly. Did you know about yes. it when you were a VC? I, I knew about it as an operator because I was a VC. I, I, I there was a rule of thumb way back when, when I was a VC, don't ever raise it more than like <clears throat> seven times forward revenue. I mean, that went out the window 10, 15 years ago, but that was the rule of thumb. I think was Mark, I, I had first heard it from Mark Lore, diapers.com, and that's how they ran diapers. And that was an e-commerce rule of thumb. And the reason why was e-commerce business had always traded from one to three times revenue, nothing more ever. Mm -hmm. uh, right. Zappos was one and a half or one and three quarters, and people thought that was high. And the reason is most of these are low margin businesses at the end of the day. Um, mm -hmm. And along the way, all this stuff went out the window. I think Casper did it one time at five times um, forward uh, and they blew, it was the highest comp anyone had ever seen in e-commerce. I've never done it. I, I haven't fallen into this trap. I don't have a lot to contribute. I just, I knew the rules and I tried to avoid them. Um, I tried to build a very you rational business and I've tried to do it multiple mm -hmm. times. Um, and I'm one of those ones who focuses on unit economics a lot. Uh, mm. and so I, I'm probably a little bit different than the rest of this group on this topic. It, I think it, you, you probably came to founding companies being able to look at businesses, the way a VC looks at them. And actually, even though people like to make fun of VCs. I, I have come to the conclusion that they actually are, despite everything that we just said, that actually they're super sophisticated business uh, evaluators. And, and, and you want to believe the hype on Twitter, like, yeah, fucking VC brags, like all this shit, they're morons. But actually, 
especially at, you know, I don't know at the partner level, I can't say because like it's people that are there from legacy generations and things like that. But at the analyst level, those people are machines. Is that's the mm-hmm. conclusion that I've Yeah, heard. I mean, like we had slides in our in our seed deck and our pre-seed deck of this is what the unit economics will be. This is what we have to do. When we went out and negotiated with our first manufacturer, we asked for net ninety, uh, which was actually utterly insane. And for anyone who doesn't know, that, that means we have to pay ninety days later than they give us the product. We ended up settling on net sixty, and that was such a mm. gift because it basically gave us 60 days for pay and it ended up financing a lot of the inventory at the very beginnings. We messed up a lot of other stuff, but we knew the rules of unity. We knew what our unity economics had to be. And we may have not have gotten there at the very early days, but we knew what we were trying to cost down at every step of the way. So that's what we were good at. We made every ever mistake of the book. Don't get me wrong. Um, Everyone does. But we knew we started with an LTV to CAC ratio. We started with what we thought our gross margin had to be. And in general, I've mm. run businesses like that. And I've always, I always sit there and think about that. Um, that was helpful. So the, you know, it was different because we were in a software business. Joy mode was much more like that, where we really capped mm. ROI and LTV and unit economics where clout was just like, we were growing so fast. Like we were every day was our biggest day for years. And, wow. and there was no, you know, we spent $0 ever on acquisition. Um, yeah, there, there really was the cost to run, you know, it was a data API was our biggest kind of, uh, revenue piece. We, we had some campaigns. We had like four people on the like sales and account management team generating, you know, uh, high single digits of millions in revenue. Like, it was a really, you didn't, there wasn't like a unit economics problem. It was just a like overshot on how fast we could keep, thought we could keep growing. Yeah. Can we, um, the last clo- close out here, the last 10 minutes pivot to this, this other topic that we had, the, the Sahil might, mighty, mm. um, uh, going down. It was a great topic. Yeah. I think that that's definitely for second and third time entrepreneurs. Um, so the news was, uh, Sahil, who was a uh, previous founder of, um, mixed panel, uh, mixed panel. Um, so he started, uh, a company called mighty and what they did was they were basically a virtual machine of Chrome. Um, so his big thesis, I believe was that. It, 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 everybody is running on the web and, uh, to do that inside a computer, especially how bloated Chrome has become, how slow it's become. People have so many tabs that to basically put that into a supercomputer in the cloud and then just stream over all of the video and basically be, be a virtual machine for your browser. So he worked on this for about three and a half years. Um, he's also kind of been building a public too. So I, I, I don't know him, but I've been following him along the way. Um, but he just announced that they're, they're stopping work on it. Um, and they are, which, which is sad. Um, and, uh, they're now pivoting towards something else in the, I guess, generative, um, AI. I don't really know what their, their, uh, new, new company is doing, but 
to just see for for me it was just seeing that and i could just like resonate so much for somebody who's gone at it again failing and then they're going back at it again but also it sounds like it with with existing investors capital as well they still had 50 percent of the capital in the business and so they're basically starting this new business with the existing team as well so thoughts around around here was was mcpanel successful i think the answer is yes right yes okay it's got to be i and i have a friend of mine aiden nullman who actually works at mighty I don't know how big their team is, but he was so excited to work there. He was unbelievably excited. I bet all the engineers love the idea and yes. it's technically complex and all these other things. You got to give it to a dude who was working in public. Cause you know, like, like we talked a couple of times about Nikita beer and how his gas app and he's like talking about how sexy his thing is right now or whatever. Mm-hmm. But when it's easy to write and build in public when your thing is working, but to continue to build in public, when it's not, Justin Kahn had a similar thing. I'd love to talk about that some other time with his uh, insane lawyer company. Atrium. Yeah. What was it Atrium. called? Atrium. Atrium. Yeah, that's it. So it's you You got to give it to a guy to be really humble about his thing and to say something. My instinct would have just been like, just to not and there's just quietly maybe pivot to some other thing tell the investors obviously the team you know i don't know if i would have posted it on twitter i don't know if i could have done yeah it. but i think at the same time we all checked out his new company right and none of us does anyone here actually know him besides following him on twitter yeah no. i am yeah, i, I signed up for his new company i i, I thought right. it was it bill it, it, it helped him generate attention uh but it, clearly, attention didn't solve the mighty problem, right? Mighty's hard, right. guy, folks. Mighty's a really difficult product to build. He's basically building a VM in the cloud to then go stream it all back to you. And at the end of the day, you're you're basically competing with Apple's improvements on their silicon. Uh, because as the M1 comes out, the M2 comes out, I think there'll be a 3 and a 4 and a 5, you need, you need Mighty less and less. Uh, on top of it, you have to build a browser. You have to get to feature parity. Uh, and you yeah. ha- feature parity is really tough. And take it for somebody who's building in the video in the real-time communication space. Real-time is really, really, mm-hmm. really difficult. The internet was not built for real-time. Um, and I really respect him for what he built. It was a pretty good product. Um, and I hope he does really well in the next one. If feature parity is such a hard thing, if you if you've never yeah, it's so hard. If you've never worked in something that requires feature parity, practice before it ever built a full featured suite, built a chat app, and only when we built a chat app did we realize, holy shit, the standard for chat is so high today in 2021, 2020. It's like so many things need to work. It needs to be so clear you know, hard press does this thing. Like there's all these standards that Apple has set up, that fucking WhatsApp has set up. It's the same thing with the browser. And and you gotta you gotta respect you gotta respect a, a guy for going at a hard thing. My instinct would have been go after a market that we know exists. Instead he went after a market that was completely out of left field the second time, which is incredibly daring. And also he did get a lot like early on, cause I've been following him since he started this, 
he got a lot of hate as far as um like why would you do this chrome is like okay and and like i i'm sure that he had the aspiration well i just i'm guessing here like his aspiration was to build the next web browser somehow that was going to be in the cloud and it was probably going to hook up to email and calendars and everything would be whatever that's that's my guess there but one of the things that like um that one of the reasons that i wanted to bring this up is that and which is one of the reasons i don't criticize anybody that uh uh at least publicly <laughs> um the people are actually building like uh, what's the the roosevelt's the the man in the arena speech right like there, there's going to be a lot of critics um that are going to have a lot of opinions and that's what they are but you have to respect the person that's out there building and not only is this person building but now he's pivoting to something completely different maybe they have a lot of learnings and also taking the rest of investors there and he's, he's just staying in the arena continuing building i have utter respect for people that continue to do that he didn't go also he didn't go the, the vc route uh he definitely could have done that as well he's still building i love builders um and he took on a really hard problem and they found that they, they couldn't solve it um in the way that that i'm not sure why they couldn't solve it if they didn't have product product fit if it was too expensive or what their actual reasons were but he's back at it and i have yeah. nothing but respect for people that do that I think we totally. all really respect him. He tried a real hard tech problem. He built in pro he built in public. Um and he went for mm. it. And that's what this industry is about. Yep. There's no fraud here. Uh he's honest. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know him. I assume he's very honest. And like I think we're all talking about him with admiration, even though it didn't work. And sure. we all feel very we all feel like we know him because we follow him on Twitter and none of us have ever actually met him or interacted with him and I hope you reach out to me, Sahil, if you if you listen to this show, because I think what you did is absolutely incredible in such a hard domain. And I mean, mm -hmm. I'm trying to do it in, with Val with real time communication, and I, I I hope your generative AI company is completely successful, and it looked pretty cool. What do you What do you guys think? I, I've also I've seen that founders kind of go one or two ways. Typically, it's like continue building. Uh, either when they're successful or not, or go into VC, or also at both at the same time. You've seen some, some um, actually a parallel company to, to sales that somebody raised like a $30 million venture fund. Um, and I saw that the feature slow down, uh, possibly as a result. Um, what, what do you guys think on all the different options that the founders have these days? I don't know if you... <sighs> You know, let me, I'll tell you what I was compelled by, because I, I had those options, right? I could have started a little fund. I could have built again in real estate. I could have, you know, any, I could have built a hospitality business. I could have any number of different things. But I found that there was something, for, to, to bring it back to the schmucks that, that we were talking about at the very beginning of the thing, I found that there was a unique density of talent, that existed in venture that you actually can't find in other places. I haven't worked in every every industry, but I at at Breather and today at at practice, it's also true. I work with some of the smartest, most dedicated, hardworking people I've ever met in my whole life. And I have a for my for me, I, I have a very high standard. And so that's really compelling. Now not only that, 
but I have an ability to fundraise. And I was like, well, I can raise and get this type of person together. And like, how exciting is that? And mm -hmm. what I had noticed is when you get a company to a certain scale, even to mighty scale, you can really help people in a way that you care about. That was just so attractive to me. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm past 40. I used to think about, oh, the idea of retiring at 40. <clears throat> I have a Reddit post open uh, somewhere in my tabs, right? Um, and uh, about somebody who retired at 40. In reality, I tried retiring. I tried retiring for like a year. It was not that interesting. And I was like, well, I'm going to go build something. And so I, I might keep doing that, which is weird because I never thought I would be that type of person. Joe, what got you to, to go from Joymo to your latest company? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's part of the not knowing better. And like, I just love the build. Kevin, you said something earlier of, you know, you've spent 10 years in this industry and you want to apply your knowledge. And, you know, having gone through a couple startups now, I want to apply what I've learned. And I feel like it would be almost disrespectful to love that those lessons to not apply them. Uh, so I'm still hungry. I don't, I don't know better. I don't, uh, mm. and I, I can't imagine not building. Love that. Is that a great way to end? I think it's there's something wrong end. with all of all us. Right. <laughs> yeah, there, there may be, or, yeah, or there's not, and we're doing something that we love. Well, I, I like, I literally can't get a job. Like, no one's offering me fucking some other shit. I'm not going to be a VP at fucking shop. Julian, Fine. you're no going to curse them out on day one. All my <laughs> no no one's not. calling you. Like, just... <laughs> Nobody fucking calls me. You, you know? swear too so much for Canada. Them. And and that... <laughs> that must be it. That must be it. Okay, Kevin. All like... right. Episode four in the books. Yeah. Great job. Thanks, everyone. Ooh. Thanks for listening. Bye. Subscribe to all of our different channels we're on. Keep the browser open. Keep the browser open. <laughs> all right, see you guys. Bye. Bye. Hey, yeah, we keep it real and we bring you the facts. It's the Second Time Founders Podcast. Talking tech news, the show is a must. Not some billionaire trying to sell you their book. We're coming from a real place. Plenty ups and downs, got some insights. Join the discussion now. We being honest and raw, giving you real talk. We've been at the bottom and made it happen and much more. The Second Time Founders Podcast. More building, less talk.